0: We'll be discussing our plan for dramatic tax cuts. Now with the hurricane, I'm going to ask for a speed-up.
1: Seriously, dude? With the hurricane? A speed-up? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Quick, get those tax cuts. I got the feeling there's something right. Unbelievable. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Let me choke us to the right Here I am stuck in the middle with you Yep Yes, I'm stuck in the middle From Pacifica middle Radio in Los Angeles, this is the One broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA In Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast 106.7 KSO in Cottage Grove In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 WLRI, in Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU, in Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1, in Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP, in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, in New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV, in Washington, D.C. on 105.5 FM, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950. KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets, on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com when she's not down due to hurricane, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk, and Radio Sputnik. Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, Boy, boy howdy. What a weekend for a whole bunch, a whole millions of folks on the uh, southeastern seaboard of these United States. But, you know, um, breaking, uh, when was this, Desi, uh, late f- uh, Friday night, Thursday night in Mexico, this uh, earthquake, this huge earthquake?
2: Yes, I uh, think I was late uh, Thursday night. I can't because even keep them I know. all straight it's anymore. It's hard to keep track of all of the natural disasters that do seem to be just, you know, erupting all over the place all at once.
1: They do. Uh, by the way, erupting there was our uh, producer Desi Doyen. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, according to Mexican officials, at least 90 people have died as a result of the 8.1 magnitude quake that shook Mexico City and southern Mexico, you're right, on late uh, Thursday night. Uh, Even as Hurricane Katia, Hurricane Katia, yes, was coming ashore there in uh, in Mexico from the Gulf of Mexico. And as the scope of the damage from Hurricane Harvey was just beginning to come to light in Houston and surrounding areas and... As Florida was preparing for the monster Hurricane Irma, which had been shredding Caribbean island nations on its way toward a head-on collision with the entire state of Florida on Sunday. That's a lot of disasters. All at once, and it doesn't even take into account the wildfires and the heat out west uh, here in the U.S., the record droughts in places like Portugal right now, thousands killed in monsoons in, uh, in recent weeks in southern Asia.
2: Yep, Nepal, Bangladesh, India, yes.
1: So hopefully I can be forgiven for uh, losing track of when the hell that earthquake, that terrible earthquake hit in Mexico. <laughs> Uh, But back here in the U.S., at least, uh, scientists have been warning for decades about increased climate change-related disasters and what our cities, particularly in coastal areas where we've seen this population explosion over the past couple of decades, uh, what those uh, cities, what our own cities need to do to, uh, and our states, and frankly our nation, needs to do in order to prepare. We'll be joined by a disaster historian. Yes, there is such a thing uh, to uh, jo- to talk about uh, this recent one-two punch of hurricane disasters here in the U.S. and what we can learn from them, and frankly, what we might have done to prepare for them long ago. Uh, and why the U.S. has been slow in upgrading and maintaining infrastructure, and whether or not these storms will yet light a much-needed fire under public officials. To uh, to start taking action, but first, uh, yeah, as we go to air here, after uh, Florida took a brutal beating over the weekend uh, from Irma, and the storm is beginning now to to swamp Georgia as well as towns on the on the coast in South Carolina and Alabama. Man, what a mess! Florida Governor Rick Scott says the Navy has deployed to uh, uh, the the U.S. Iwo Jima and the U.S. New York. Uh, and the aircraft carrier Abraham Lincoln to help with search and rescue. and oh, quote my. Yeah, and, uh, quote, a lot of other things in the state of Florida. He says there is devastation, particularly in the Florida Keys, um, and hoping that uh, everyone who stayed behind survived Hurricane Irma. There is so much power out across the state right now. Communications are terrible. So we really don't have a a full extent at all of the uh, of the damage. After flying over uh, the Florida Keys, Rick Scott said there was a lot of damage that every mobile home park in the Keys had overturned homes. Monroe County officials described, quote, an astounding recovery effort taking place in the Florida Keys right now as we go to air. Homeland Security Advisor Tom Bossert said that while Irma's uh, category of strength may have been reduced now to a tropical storm, its combined effects may replicate that of a more powerful storm. He noted that Jacksonville, Florida, right now, for example, is experiencing some of the worst flooding it has seen in 100 years. So this thing is not over for millions of people right now as we go to air, uh, even as the storm has moved now, finally, across the border from Florida into Georgia, Tennessee and Kentucky, Bossert adds, are also both targets right now. As, as uh, Irma moves to the U.S. interior, they too could experience inland flooding. Nearly 7.2 million homes and businesses are without power in multiple states As Tropical Storm Irma moves through the southeast, the vast majority of those power outages are in Florida. The state's emergency management official said the storm cut power to more than six and a half million account holders, businesses and homes across the state as of Monday afternoon. The CEO of Florida Power and Light said Irma caused the most widespread damage in the company's history. It affected all 35 counties in the utility's territory, That's most of the state's Atlantic coast and the Gulf coast uh, south of Tampa as well. He said that it will take days for many people to have their power restored. And in some cases uh, where there was extensive damage, this could uh, power could be out for weeks in the state of Florida.
2: I mean, this is why... Emergency preparedness officials say be prepared because there are incidents like this where you can be without power for weeks on end because it just physically takes that long to replace all of the power in such a widespread disaster.
1: All of the power, all of the wires that are above ground in hurricane-prone Florida, it's amazing to me that we haven't, you know, buried those wires yet. At Well, this point.
2: you know, of course, the reason why is because it's expensive. It's expensive when you're first building out a system like that to uh, to do that kind of preparatory work. You know, in other countries, like in Germany, most power lines are mandated to be underground. That's why Often yeah, our well, listeners in journey for the Green News Report often write to me and say, why do you guys have so many power outages? Yeah, well, that's And I have why. to explain, we don't bury our power lines because the power utility companies say, oh, it's too expensive to do right now. And then you look at the cost afterward and the cost afterward, it seems to me probably far outweighs the cost that it would have been to just do the basic preventive measures. Yeah,
1: exactly. And it's not just the power companies. We don't want to pay for it. People don't want to pay for it. We have this idea that taxes are bad. More on that, though, in a moment. Uh, Jacksonville, Florida authorities uh, today uh, were telling residents near the uh, St. John's River on uh, Monday afternoon to leave quickly. Floodwaters were rising. The Jacksonville Sheriff's Office warned people in evacuation zones Uh, along the St. John's River to, quote, get out now. That was today. That was still going on. They were still calling for evacuations in some of these areas. They say the river is at historic flood levels and is likely to get worse at high tide. The nation's busiest airport, Atlanta International, canceled about 800 flights on Monday. Miami International Airport was closed entirely on Monday as the uh, weekend uh, Irma moved from Florida into Georgia. The government had uh, the government. The governor had well. The government had declared an emergency on Sunday for the entire state. The city of Savannah on Georgia's coast was evacuated for the second time in less than a year because of the impending storm, and the National Weather Service in Peachtree City confirmed that Atlanta more than 250 miles inland from the Atlantic or Gulf Coast was under a tropic storm tropical storm warning for the first time in this in the city's history that's 250 miles inland Desidoin and, and a a tropical, tropical storm, storm. warning <laughs> oh, yeah man. And uh, to add to those problems in Atlanta that they're uh, uh, dealing with, fingers are crossed. I know a lot of folks are hunkering down now. Threats of uh, tornadoes really is, is, I think, uh, one of the biggest worries in Atlanta at this hour. But thousands of evacuees from Florida had made their way into Atlanta. Uh, For shelter as uh, they fled Irma for the past several days. So there is like nowhere to run, you know, nowhere (laughs) to hide. At least within
2: a 15, 16 hour drive.
1: Uh, Yeah. I mean, where do you go when a hurricane swamps the entire Florida peninsula? That now on top of, uh, well, don't forget, in Puerto Rico, which is a U.S. territory, by the way, in case people don't understand that. And how we're, you know, just letting things degrade in Puerto Rico because we don't want to, you know, help them out. They are a US territory. Governor Ricardo Rossello said on Sunday that more than six hundred schools don't have power. More than four hundred don't have water. Another nearly four hundred schools have neither. So you're talking about a thousand schools without power, eight hundred of them without water? Dozens are flooded. Nearly 600,000 people in the U.S. territory remain without power. Uh, That's about 40 percent of customers of the uh, Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority, and they were hit days ago. So that's still ongoing. There have been reports of uh, devastation and unrest in both the British and U.S. Virgin Islands. And all of this, uh, remember, a meteorologist uh, calculated over the weekend that uh, Hurricane Irma would dump about 10 trillion gallons of rain on Florida over a day and a half time period. 10 trillion gallons. That's about half a million gallons for every Florida resident. 500,000 gallons for every single person who lives in the state of Florida, man, woman or child. This was meteorologist Ryan Maui, who's been trying to put, as we have in terms, just how bad these storms have been. Uh, Ryan Maui of uh, Weather Bell Analytics, he calculates uh, that the storm would dump some uh, 6 trillion gallons on Georgia as well. So that's uh, 10 trillion gallons on Florida, 6 trillion gallons on Georgia. Sounds like a lot of water, but by comparison, Hurricane Harvey which stalled over the Texas coast, dumped about 20 trillion gallons on Texas and 7 trillion gallons of rain on Louisiana in those five days. So as bad as uh, Irma was, uh, as far as rainfall goes, uh, Hurricane Harvey was far worse. And that water just stayed. It didn't wash back out with the tide immediately. It stayed there for days. So a lot of federal assistance is going to be needed in a lot of places, in a lot of cities, in a lot of states, all at once, and for many years, frankly, at this point. And yet, amid all of that over the weekend, President Donald Trump, uh, citing Hurricane Irma, uh, which made landfall in in Florida, uh, over the weekend, he cited that as his rationale to ask Congress to speed up tax cuts, tax cuts, what he calls tax reform. It's tax cuts. You know, just, well, his quote, uh, we will, we don't have to play it, Des, we will be, uh, he said, we'll be discussing, he was at Camp David over the weekend, had a cabinet meeting out there, said, we will be discussing our plan for dramatic tax cuts And tax reform. And I think now with what's happened with the hurricane, I'm going to ask for a speed up. Uh, He said, I wanted to speed up anyway, but now we need it even more so.
2: And that is completely gobsmacking because that is actually the last thing we need. We need Congress to focus to focus for once on rebuilding our infrastructure, preparing for future disasters, helping out the poor and the elderly and the and all the people in all of the communities that were particularly hardest hit and don't have the resources to recover. And then he's talking about actually cutting the revenue that would go yeah. into the coffers to pay for these billions and billions of dollars in damages. I mean, I saw one estimate of damage that Harvey and Irma, those two hurricanes together, could cost more than $290 billion. Dollars in economic losses, and
1: that's yeah, that's just for you know repairing the damage that has been done. Never mind uh, hardening our, uh, our our cities uh, against this sort of thing, so these things aren't so costly on the back end. I mean, but you know, it goes along with this 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 Republican orthodoxy that somehow, for which there is no evidence, by the way. That if you cut taxes, somehow you make more money. Somehow the government <laughs> makes more money. There is just no evidence to support this. Ronald Reagan has been, uh, you know, offering this great myth obviously for for decades. Republicans believe it, no matter the evidence that shows quite the opposite. And so, of course, naturally, you have Fox, uh, you have Donald Trump who's been watching Fox News for all of these years, you know, saying, oh, this is really bad. We really need to speed up these tax cuts because, you know, with this hurricane, we're going to need more money. So. Cut taxes and bring less into the government coffers.
2: Less revenue equals less revenue. It's it's sort of a basic math problem. But of course, as you know, we've mentioned before, for Republicans, it's ideology. It is an article of faith that uh, that every the answer to every problem is taxes. Exactly.
1: Uh, so that's what Donald Trump was uh, saying over the weekend. Uh, in the meantime, the Pope had a word or two to say about Donald Trump. Uh, He he uh, he blasted him on his uh, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals on his DACA move. He said that if President Donald Trump considers himself pro-life, he should reconsider the decision to end the DACA program. Uh, He said the President of the United States presents himself as pro-life. And if he is a good pro-lifer, he understands that family is the cradle of life and this unity must be protected. Pope said it's important for young people to have their roots. In the end, he said, young people feel like they have no hope. And who robs them of hope? Drugs, other addictions, suicides, youth suicides are very high. And this happens when they are torn from their roots. That's exactly what Donald Trump is threatening by canceling uh, by canceling the DACA program. But he also, the Pope also said this. He had apparently, it was a wide-ranging Q&A with reporters uh, on the Papal Plain as it returned to, uh, to the Vatican after a trip to Colombia, he said that history will harshly judge deniers of climate change. He said these aren't opinions pulled out of thin air, talking about the scientists warning about climate change. He said they are very clear. Those warnings are very clear, he said, and then the leaders decide what to do about it and that history will judge those decisions. For those who have denied climate change or delayed action to counter it, the Pope said, uh, well, he responded with an Old Testament saying, apparently, uh, quote, man is stupid. (laughs) I didn't I, know that was in the Old Testament. I don't
2: think it says it exactly like that. Well, I think he was sort of paraphrasing. Well, for,
1: uh, maybe so. For I don't audiences. know. I, you're, you're the Bible expert, not me. Uh, man is stupid. He said, when you don't want to see, you don't see. And I think that's uh, yeah. kind of right on the money here. Well, there have uh, there are a lot of folks who don't want to see a lot of warning signs that are very clear, that have been very clear. And when disaster strikes, disasters that they had been warned about, uh, even then, uh, they neither want to properly fund recovery efforts or the efforts to avoid such disasters in the future. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be back with disaster historian Scott Knowles on what we might learn. Maybe, if anything, finally, who knows? Uh, What we might learn from Harvey and Irma and what we should have learned and done about such disasters before they struck long ago. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. As Politico's Lorraine Wellert noted, as the record-breaking Hurricane Irma was rolling across Florida over the weekend, more than a decade of budget cutting and a rash of government job vacancies are taxing Washington's ability to cope with a one-two punch of epic storms. The fiscal belt tightening, she says, has coincided with an American migration to job abundant coasts where people are building bigger houses and taller condos while shunning flood insurance. Storms, fires and other disasters are hitting with more frequency and fury, forcing the federal government to cope with overlapping catastrophes. That's something we had talked about uh, last week and uh, a week or so ago with David Roberts of Vox, this idea that w- what happens when all of these disasters, in that case from climate change, start hitting at the same time? Well, it sort of seems to be happening. Uh, in any event, uh, who could have seen that coming, these increased disasters ...that also come along with uh, population growth on the coast. Well, a whole lot of people uh, have seen it coming, as it turns out, just not the ones who necessarily decide government spending, taxation, and policy priorities that many argue have left American infrastructure crumbling and uniquely vulnerable to increasing disasters in a climate-changing world. Over the weekend, federal first responders were decamping from the Hurricane Harvey havoc in Texas... To head for Florida, Wellert notes at Politico, since federal disaster budgets and resources have been slashed over the past several decades. She notes that Hurricane Irma was slamming the state of Florida just as rebuilding aid for last year's Hurricane Matthew had only just now begun arriving from Washington to the state. Capital Weather Gang meteorologist Jason Same now at Washington Post noted that when Irma approached the Florida Peninsula, there was no good course for it to follow. Devastation was guaranteed from a storm so big and so strong, attested to by the six million-plus power outages still ongoing as we go to air. But the track that it ultimately pursued was better than some alternatives. The dangerous right-front quadrant with the worst winds and biggest surge targeted Everglades City to Marco Island, which is a less populated zone than many others. He writes if the right front quadrant had instead targeted Miami, for example, the storm surge disaster would have been unimaginably bad. Luckily, though, we haven't begun to assess the real costs of the still ongoing Irma disaster. That's made much more difficult at the moment, given the massive power outages across several states. But fortunately, He notes the storm surge flooding in Miami, at least, is a mere fraction of what could have happened if the core of Irma had been just slightly farther to the east. Rick Nabb, hurricane uh, expert at the Weather Channel and previously director of the National Hurricane Center, suggests that uh, at least Miami may have dodged a bullet. So while we don't yet know the extent of the Irma disaster, and so far thankfully reported loss of life, at least in the continental U.S., has been low... We know that it will be a costly disaster on top of the already massively costly disaster of Hurricane Harvey. And that doesn't even include the costs of the ongoing fires and heat out west and the possibility that, oh yeah, Hurricane Jose, now in the Pacific, could take a turn to the U.S. eastern seaboard in a few days, slamming the U.S. with yet another disaster to cope with. While long overdue action to help mitigate climate change would have been unlikely to avoid these disasters altogether themselves. It might have helped mitigate them somewhat, according to both climate scientists and infrastructure experts. The U.S. has long put off much needed infrastructure upgrades. And as we cover on this show and on The Green News Report, quite often... Uh, For many years, the U.S. has been wildly delinquent for decades now in taking action to curb the man-made causes of global warming itself. Here to talk about the man-made mess that we have uh, seemingly left ourselves in in the wake of two massive hurricane disasters in as many weeks is Dr. Scott Knowles. He's a disaster historian, or as I prefer to think of him, a master of disaster He is the interim uh, department head of Drexel University's Center for Science, Technology, and Society, where he focuses on risk and disaster. His most recent book is The Disaster Experts, Mastering Risk in Modern America. Dr. Scott Knowles, sir, welcome to the broadcast.
0: Thank you, Brad. It's good to be with you.
1: Great to have you here. All right. Well, very quickly, I got a lot to ask you. Uh, what, first, what is a disaster historian? I didn't even know until recently that there was such a thing. And as a disaster historian, have we ever seen anything uh, comparable in the U.S. to the size and the scope of this one-two punch from Harvey and Irma just on a historic level uh, in two completely different geographic regions like this?
0: I started using that term, disaster historian, actually um, after September 11,
1: Mm.
0: and uh, at that time people might have looked at it a little bit sideways, but the fact is that the frequency and the cost of disasters we're facing now uh, means that nobody looks at me strangely anymore, and in fact, disaster studies is a really rapidly growing area um, of research in part because of the frequency of storms, the frequency of disasters we're facing, and the cost. But also, I think, because we're able now more accurately to trace back the causes of these disasters to uh, historical decisions that have been made. Some of them are older decisions, but many of them are much more recent decisions since World War II, where we live, how we live, how we write our building codes, what we choose to spend money on and not spend money on. I think those are traceable mm-hmm. um, historical uh, pathways and so disaster history, uh, unfortunately, I think is here to stay.
1: Mm. And uh, it, and I have some a lot of specific questions actually about how we choose to spend our money and so forth. But on an historic level, uh, can you think of anything comparable to uh, these sort of uh, two huge disasters at uh, virtually at the same time?
0: I think it's a it's a really interesting question because the assumption there is that if we see disasters at this scale coming in clusters. Mm-hmm then it would activate us to make change. And and I, w- I would say we have seen this before. I mean, maybe not within a week apart, although there are examples of that. I mean, Three Mile Island and Love Canal were a year apart. Mm. Um, the 2007 and 2008 wildfire seasons uh, in California would register that. But, I mean, we can go pretty far back in history. We can find um, the Great Chicago Fire, for example, 1871, and the Peshtigo Fire, in Wisconsin, we're on the same day in 1871, so we we can find examples of um, really significant disasters mm-hmm. that are clustered close in time. I think the bigger question is whether or not society's ready to take that message in at those moments. In other words... Is there some sort of reform movement already underway when those disasters happen that enable us to interpret them as moments where we should activate change?
1: As tragic as the uh, death tolls uh, from these storms have been uh, so far, they still seem uh, far lower than comparable storms of past years. Uh, so before we talk about what we're doing wrong, let's talk for a second about what we're doing right. Is is uh, any of that, that lower death toll, is any of that attributable to, uh, to luck or... A- Have we actually learned something about these types of disasters over the years?
0: The death tolls in the United States have have certainly come down, although I think Hurricane Katrina and the September 11 attacks are both examples where people were surprised at how high the death toll still Mm -hmm. could be. Um, But in general, our death toll from storms would come down from, say, the 6,000 people who died in the 1900 Galveston Mm -hmm. uh, hurricane. But I'm not sure that's... Uh, that, of course, is an important measure, but also an important measure is a sort of a misery index. You know, we mm-hmm. sort of think about, you know, maybe people didn't die, but they had to leave their homes. Mm-hmm. Um, they had to evacuate, or we're looking at Katrina, you know, people who had to leave the city altogether and not come back. So there's other ways to measure the impacts that might go beyond deaths. And, of course, the United States... We're talking about, but I mean, we have to also consider what happened in 2004 in Indonesia or what's just happened very recently in Nepal, um, you know, with the floods there. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, we're focused on an American story, but globally speaking, um, death counts from disasters can still be very, very high.
1: Here in the uh, in the U.S., what we have, well, nearly seven million people in the uh, southeast uh, were warned to evacuate uh, from uh, Irma, including about six and a half million in Florida alone. More were killed during the evacuation uh, of Hurricane Rita in Houston back in uh, 2012 than in the storm itself. And of course, I keep thinking about uh, the nuclear plant on the southern tip of Florida, Turkey Point. Uh, throughout all of this, uh, and you know w- what would happen if, if that thing had been overtaken, or if there was just a you know a meltdown at Turkey Point itself, even uh, not related to the flood, do we even have the infrastructure in this country to accommodate these types of mass evacuations, despite what frankly seems to be kind of an obvious need for them, whether it's in Houston or Florida or or anywhere else right now?
0: The Hurricane Rita evacuation is one that, I mean, you asked a question about whether or not we'd learned anything. Mm-hmm. I, I do think something was learned from that. When they ordered an evacuation of Houston, and um, over 100 people died in stuck in traffic or in fires that happened, actually, in vehicles. On, and, you know, it was a terrible uh, series of disasters that were not the disaster people were expecting. So I think You know, Sylvester Turner, Mayor Turner's decision to shelter in place in Houston was uh, a good example of what might have been learned from that. And these are very difficult decisions that mayors, often local officials, we focus on presidents, we focus on Trump and Mm -hmm. and whether or not they look presidential in front of a firehouse. That's the wrong place to focus. we really got to be looking at what mayors and governors, local officials, or as you were pointing out, um, people who are running nuclear power plants, you know, how effective can they be in communicating clearly and assessing risk? Like you, I was very concerned about the potential impacts. There's a nuclear power plant close to where uh, Harvey made landfall, two plants in Florida that uh, over the weekend had to go into um, shutdown.
1: Mm-hmm. And, yeah, who
0: of us who didn't, you know, those of us who followed Fukushima, of course, had in mind that it wasn't um, just the flood, but it's also whether or not you can keep power going at these places, Um Mm -hmm. to avoid the worst kind of disasters these kind of model models you know in terms of those evacuations they were doing that back in the cold war um you know planning to empty cities in nuclear attack and we thought we'd gotten away from that kind of concern we thought we'd gotten away from the idea that you might have to empty a a full american city or even Mm. half a state but we're right back there now brad
1: Mm. And uh, it does not feel like we're ready for that. Uh, South and uh, Central Florida have grown by about 4 million people since the last time uh, Category 5, I believe, uh, hit the state. Uh, the population growth in Houston has also proven to be a huge obstacle and, and a danger for Houston, as we saw during Harvey. Uh, And and by the way, that that disaster, the Harvey disaster, still persists. People need to know that, I think, because everybody sort of, you know, moved their attention, understandably, to Irma. But that is an ongoing disaster in Houston. Uh, Immediately after Harvey, we covered in detail uh, on this show how how officials in charge of the flood control in that city and in uh, Harris County itself, uh, Houston, uh, appeared to be not only climate deniers, but flood deniers of a sort. They were charging that. You know, those scientists like you, Scott, uh, who warned for years uh, about these things, about a Harvey-sized flood, that that those sorts of folks were anti-development. How can that sort of very pervasive thinking among folks who are in charge, the politicians who are, you know, making policy decisions, how can that be overcome? Or do we just have to sit around and wait for a, a, a massive disaster before they take action?
0: No, I think waiting for the disaster is the wrong approach. And in fact, we this sort of really connects with environmental concerns more broadly in American environmental politics, which is that one of the strongest lobbies, if not the strongest lobby in America, is the Lending Construction Insurance Complex. Mm-hmm. And in some sectors, they call it the fire complex, um, finance, insurance, real estate. And of course, uh These are important job creators in every state, but particularly in coastal states, as you point out. Since World War II, Americans have been flocking to the coasts. We have more people living along the coast now than ever in American history, including the beginning of American history, which is hard to fathom. Um, And so part of that has to do with developing in risky areas, or in California developing in wildland-urban interface areas. So those pressures are very, very strong. And what community doesn't want to have more tax rateables? right? Because that's how you build schools and that's how you build roads and that's Mm -hmm. how you do the things that, you know, civil society wants. So there's a built-in conflict there. And then you get scientists um, coming in and saying, well, we should manage the floodplains or we shouldn't develop here. And so there's your conflict. I think if you're waiting until the floodwaters uh, have receded, your strategy was wrong. I think the political strategy has to be between the disasters and emphasizing not just um, some sort of broad, more general environmental concern, but very specific impacts, uh, economic impacts, but also impacts on the poor, because the fact is that um, disasters always punch down. People Mm. who are the most vulnerable in our society are the most highly impacted by disaster. So I think Democrats and Republicans can both find things um, to get behind in terms of telling that development complex that they need to slow down and they need to look more clearly at the risks that they're putting us all
1: in you uh you write at your uh new website slowdisaster.com about the dangers of deferred maintenance uh and the deferred maintenance multiplier multiplier effect i want to ask you what what that is uh and and you know if the deferred maintenance you're talking about uh, actually deferred or I, I think more likely more simply ignored uh, forever uh, until disaster strikes right. but I think a lot of it comes to I want to get your thoughts on this I don't want to get too political on this matter at least today but it feels to me that a lot of this goes back to Ronald Reagan uh, frankly and his uh, his infamous slogan do we have that there, desk I think you all know that I've always felt the Nine most terrifying words in the English language are i 'm from the government and i 'm here to help now. I think everyone remembers that the idea was was picked up though not only by Republicans but Democrats alike, and I think there 's something inherently you know they think there 's something inherently wrong with with stuff that the government does, and uh, you know of course, the idea that massive tax cuts are always needed that 's become part of the American culture and ideology and politics ever since uh reagan's i i call it his great con there but do we see an uptick in so-called deferred maintenance putting off this stuff uh with the era of ronald reagan and 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 clinton's uh bill clinton's small government rhetoric in the 80s
0: there was some concern in the 80s and i really appreciate that clip because it's reagan's voice it should have been the voice of a of a scientist or a floodplain manager, which would not have been nearly so dramatic or threatening, and maybe people would have said, yeah, come on in and help us. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the fact is that in the 80s, there was concern that the post-war spending um, on infrastructure, which really built the modern economy of this country, not just bridges and roads, but also eventually the Internet and telecommunications, um, that those investments were not being uh, managed well. They were not being maintained well. We started to see wear and tear by the 80s. And the Reagan administration actually um, allowed a study of that, and the study came back and said, yeah, you've deferred maintenance too long and your grades are bad. Uh, And the government never again paid for that study. The American Society of Civil Engineers actually has taken that over, and now they have a a quadrennial report card that they put out. And, you know, I'll save your listeners looking at it, although they might find it interesting. (laughs) Um, We, at best, get the gentleman's C. Uh, We're in bad shape, and so it's not. Not just deferred, maybe just put off. I guess I'm still an optimist in the hopes that particularly states that um, can find some bipartisan way to work will realize that these investments that were made after World War two were not ridiculous investments, but they actually undergird um, the basis of development in this country today mm-hmm. and public safety as well.
1: It kind of takes me back actually to uh... you know one of my earlier questions about the you know putting this off and uh, the, but the idea that We've seen at least deaths, death rates from disasters like hurricanes, tornadoes, and so forth drop off, you know, over the past hundred years, fifty hundred years or so. You write uh, in one of your uh, recent Twitter threads that there was sort of a revolutionary response to fires and floods and so forth that happened in the 18th and 19th century, that government actually was doing quite a bit of research and science funding scientists uh disaster research and so forth but then that sort of came to a stop with that s- smaller government idea and that the government uh oh it's so scary that they're here to help i suspect there's a lot of people in you know florida and georgia and texas today who who aren't uh, quite so frightened about the idea of somebody showing up and saying i'm from the government and i'm here to help at this point
0: well i think that's right i and certainly the 19th and 20th century, early 20th century, these were very lightly regulated environments, mm-hmm. and development happened wherever it could happen. The problem was that you know disasters in that era. I mean, Baltimore and San Francisco. Just look at one year, a couple of years. I mean, you're asking about clustered disasters. Mm-hmm. Um, Iroquois Theater fire in Chicago killed 600 people in 1903. The Baltimore fire the next year. Rochester burns down. Um, ferry accident. General Slocum fire in New York killed 1,000 people, and then the San Francisco earthquake and fire in 1906. I mean, just again, these are really disastrous eras, and people were looking for reform already mm-hmm. at that point, and they were looking for a more activist government to help them deal with the dangers of industrialization. And it's not a one-way street. Industrialization was creating wealth, but can industrialization also um, be made risk-averse? That was the question of that era, and we're facing the exact same question Now, and one of the things that I, I think we should emphasize is that in that era, it was not only public action, although I think it's very important, but universities, uh, even private universities, and also insurance companies, strange as it may sound, were investing a lot of money because they had their financial mm-hmm. um, interests in, involved as well. Yeah. And so I think we need a mixed approach where it's public, private, and nonprofit, if we're really going to bring down the disaster costs that America's facing right now, particularly with climate change, and we haven't even brought in those factors
1: yet. No, we haven't. And I have a few questions I want to ask about that. Let me hit this one real quick because even after disasters like uh, Hurricane Sandy in 2013, when the government tried to allocate money not just to disaster relief, but money to avoid uh, future similar disasters, to harden infrastructure against those disasters in the future, that was, uh, I think you described today on uh, on Twitter, that was described as, as pork by folks like uh, Senator uh, Ted Cruz of Texas. Senator Ted Cruz of Houston, by the way. Uh, do you suspect that any of these... Recent mega disasters has or will change that thinking finally among uh, among so-called conservatives. I mean, there was you know money the, uh, to to put not to rebuild uh, on the in the same place in the same way on the coast that were. You know, devastated by Sandy, and you had this a uh, huge contingent of Republicans saying, "Oh no, that's that's pork to insist that they be built farther inland or, uh, you know, up on uh, uh, stilts and so forth and harden the infrastructure." Uh, will that change now?
0: I won't be looking for Senator Cruz to change his mind or Senator <laughs> Cornyn uh, or Representative Randy Weber, who voted against all of the Sandy relief bills. Um, he's from Texas. I mean, what I'm looking at here is that those are actually very honest uh, representations of an ideology that believes that government should not be spending money on what they see as social welfare Mm -hmm. or science. So, again, a lot of the money that gets spent, let's take the Sandy Relief Bill, for example, was about rebuilding transportation. It was about housing and a small percentage of it but an important percentage was also about understanding what had happened money for the coast guard money for fema um, so that we can bring down those losses in the future i think that we see a very stark divide here it's the same divide we see in our politics around health care or environment more generally do we believe that government has a very light role and we should leave the rest of it to the private sector or do we believe that government has unique capacity because of the size and the talent and the endeavor um, to address these issues. And I can tell you that, to me at least, disaster reveals probably better than almost anything else um, these stark divides in our ide- ideologies in the United States today. So, no, I don't expect Senator Cruz um, to change his mind at all. Occasionally you will see a congressional representative change their ideology in the, in the moment if they find floodwater in their district. Mm. Um, but the fact is that we have um, Texas Republicans uh, and Florida Republicans who voted against Harvey relief. Hmm. And, you know, I mean, this is a relatively recent change. Some some would say since Hurricane Sandy that mm-hmm. we've seen, but, I, you know, that you find Republicans voting against any kind of relief. And so maybe it's an index of the partisanship that we're facing in America. But if we wait for the disaster to talk about these issues, we're again. I think we're waiting waiting for the wrong moment. These discussions have to happen ahead of time, and they're really discussions about poverty, environmental quality, and infrastructure.
1: I'm speaking with Dr. Scott Knowles of Drexel University, a disaster historian. Uh, Professor, do you, you, can I take a quick break and, and come back? I got just a few more minutes. I, I want to ask you. Do, do you have a few more minutes to, to chat? Absolutely. Thank sure. you. Uh, we'll take a quick break and we'll come back with a few more questions specifically on what can we learn from Harvey and Irma? I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. <laughs> A rainy night in Georgia. It certainly is. Welcome back to the Brad Chest. Brad Friedman from Georgia. BradBlog.com. All our uh, love to our listeners out in uh, Atlanta tonight. Got just a few more minutes here with Dr. Scott Knowles, disaster historian. From Drexel University. Uh, Professor, what can or should we learn uh, directly? I know that we're still, uh, Irma is still ongoing as we go to air Uh, relief. uh, Well, the cleanup certainly from uh, Hurricane Harvey is still underway in Houston. But what can or, or should we learn directly from these two particular disasters, Harvey and Irma, they're seemingly obvious steps. That uh, I'm thinking of Florida, for example. Uh, s- more than 6 million people currently out of uh, power. Uh, seems like an easy one. Bury the electric lines, no? Um,
0: decisions like that about how we would treat our infrastructure, the electric lines, or the kind of codes and standards you'd have in place for roofs, uh, for public facilities. Those are important lessons. Many of them, fortunately, seems like were learned from Hurricane Andrew, mm-hmm. um, but not all of them. As you said, there's millions of people without power right now in Florida. I mean, I would say the more general lesson that we learn over and over again that can't be said enough is that these disasters will be felt um, in a disproportionate way by uh, people who have who are really facing economic difficulties and young people and old people. And so we have to attend to that at every turn. And we see that today in Houston. We're seeing that, I think, already um, in South Florida. A a couple of other, maybe more fine-grained things. Mm -hmm. One is that um, some good lessons seem to have been learned in the hospital uh, sector, particularly the Texas Medical Center in in Houston Mm -hmm. performed very well. And that's On any given day, 10% of the people in Houston Metro are involved in that medical center, Mm -hmm. um, or rather in Houston City. uh, And so putting some emphasis, maybe if there are certain kinds of institutions that can really take leadership role, like these medical centers, let them lead. Um, You know, if the federal government can't be uh, bothered to fund the FEMA Disaster Relief Fund, then maybe cities, states, with Texas, I'd be careful with that. And with Florida, I'd be careful, but maybe cities, and maybe the important institutions within those cities, like um, hospitals, mm-hmm. um, they can be given more power and, and more ability to lead. And that's, that's really uh, maybe another important lesson that we can take. But absolutely, building codes, um, understanding the floodplains, and really coming back to something we were talking about before, we have to allow scientists working at all levels, but particularly the federal government, to use climate change projections – in the way that they do their work. Hmm. And this is a big debate right now in our government, believe it or not, whether or not they should use a stationary model of climate. So do we just project forward using everything we know about everything that's happened in the past, or do we use a dynamic model that really takes into account climate change? And if we don't do the latter, then we're wasting our money.
1: And people do need to understand, we have reported, uh, you know, Donald Trump rolled back a lot of exactly that, that uh, President Obama had put in place. For example, when it comes to rebuilding after uh, after disasters like this, uh, you know, the requirement to harden infrastructure against flooding. Donald Trump just, you know, weeks ago before this, uh, before both of these storms came rolling in, had rolled back a lot of those orders from the previous administration, which is kind of extraordinary, uh, frankly. Well, it was at the time, and certainly now in retrospect. So, hopefully, he gets the message there. But you know, I noticed, uh, uh, Dr. Knowles, you you retweeted another historian who had uh, who was covering uh, Irma and and noted that artificial channels have been dredged into Tampa to create extra waterfront properties. And, of course, a vector for storm surge occurs. It kind of seems like we're doing this all wrong, Scott. Uh, (laughs) You know, some of the choices that we're making that we saw in Houston and in Florida, are are we paying attention to any of this in urban development?
0: Again, I think in places where, you know, we see this very strong lobbying effect for development Mm -hmm. without any counter effect, um, then you're going to see those kind of things. Um, we absolutely have to have frank and open discussions about the realism of climate change. And yeah, I think and it's also, you know, I think it's maybe hard for us to get a, our minds around that we're a federal system. We have 50 different states and they all have 50 different land use patterns and different mm-hmm. laws. So what might be um, good You know, sensible climate change modeling in one state is, you know, wild liberalism in another state. And, you know, so Florida's impacts are going to be different from Massachusetts impacts. And in some ways, when we think about that, we're going back to the 19th century. You know, one would have thought we could have had national standards for safety by now. Um, But we're seeing this is what I think think this is the core of what we're really arguing about right now. Can we make a national commitment to safety from disaster? If we can't, then we've really, I think, let down what Americans expect out of science and government and infrastructure and engineering and all the other things, that experts that we rely on every day.
1: That's my worry. Uh, You know, a tropical storm storm warning has now been issued uh, for the first time ever in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, over the weekend, that's some 200 miles from the sea. So just to be clear here, uh, Scott, is there any question, any denial, I guess, within the disaster community and the infrastructure community itself that these storms are now growing in size and intensity and reach uh, amid a warming climate? Is that You know, Republicans love to say, oh, the science is still not settled. Is there any question in that scientific community that that you work with on that question?
0: The science of climate change is settled. I don't think that there are any significant um, outliers there. I think that there are cautious meteorologists who want to be careful that they don't attribute what might be seasonal storms that could have happened 50 or 100 years ago. They don't want to attribute... Um, those storms to climate change if they don't have the data. They're scientists. They're data junkies. They want to be able to prove what they say, and I respect that completely. Um, but they will also say that, yes, the ocean is warmer uh, later uh, mm. than it has been before, and, and so that's going to feed these storms. Mm-hmm. So they may not get into the question of anthropogenic forcing, but they're still going to be able to tell you that, yeah, the you know climate and the connection to weather is there. And I would add to that that people I know um, in the reinsurance industry, in the insurance industry, so these are private cor- companies that have a lot of money on the line, they have begun to make direct attribution um, around drought events, um, but also around severe storm events between climate change and weather patterns. So But, you know, again, I think more broadly, if we're waiting for more and more and more evidence, that's just running out the clock while people can develop more land. We've known for a long time that there's a connection here. The climate's changing, the sea level's rising, and it's time to take action.
1: Last question. Uh, I think you had tweeted, uh, when risk disaster is on people's mind, that's the right time to communicate. Now, some say, uh, as you know, immediately after a mass shooting, oh, now is not the time to discuss guns. Uh, Similarly, uh, you know, oh, now is not the time to discuss uh, failure for uh, disaster preparation, uh, climate change, that sort of thing. If that is true, when is the right time, if not when people are actually noticing how unprepared we are? I, I, I don't think there is a good, it seems to me this right now, as difficult as it is, as people are still struggling, is really the right time to have this conversation.
0: It's a rhetorical tactic to change the subject. Uh, EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt made that statement that now is not the right time to talk about climate change. And, you know, my thought was, well, fine, let's not talk about climate change. Let's talk about um, lax industrial regulations in the Arkema plant. We've got plenty to talk about when it comes to risk. Uh, and disaster. Uh, Now, you know, I like to talk about it all the time, and that (laughs) wears my family out a little bit. But, um, you know, these are the moments when people are attuned. This is when you have their attention. Um, I don't think it's disrespectful to people who are suffering to raise the cause of their suffering into political light at these moments. In fact, I think it does them a a service, and that's why so many of my colleagues who do this kind of work, work do that.
1: Master of Disaster, Dr. Scott Knowles of uh, Drexel University's Center for Science, Technology, and Society. He's author of The Disaster Experts, Mastering Risk in Modern America. You can follow his, uh, his brand new uh, website at slowdisaster.com and, of course, on the Twitters at U.S. of Disaster. Uh, Scott, really informative and helpful talking to you today. Uh, I, I hope you don't mind if we uh, shout out in the future. Hopefully not next time a disaster occurs, but uh time, because you know a whole lot about a lot of stuff that uh, we really uh, uh, cover quite a bit on this show. Thank you, sir.
0: Thanks, Brad. Let's keep in touch. I appreciate it.
1: Will do. Okay, we got to get out of here, but a quick update we talked to with our friend Nicole Sandler uh, in our last thrilling episode of the broadcast that she was hunkering down in South Florida, uh, unable to evacuate at that time. Uh, and uh, some good news, just to let you know for those folks who have asked, she says today we weathered the storm okay. Lots of cleanup of uh, tree limbs, etc. She says she's got to rebuild her studio. Oh, dear. But no, no, it was only because she had taken it apart to oh, protect true. it from. Uh, from the
2: damage from, of the water. From, from in what case could happen. happen. Yeah. Yes.
1: So she's got to rebuild her studio. Uh, nonetheless, she says she should be back up and on air on Tuesday. Oh, so hooray. there is that good news. She is doing just fine and her family. So there's some good news. Yeah. See, it's not all dark and dreary today, just mostly. Uh, My thanks to our producer, Desi Doy, and of course to my guest today, Dr. Scott Knowles of Drexel University and SlowDisaster.com. And to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated as ever. If you missed any portion of today's show, uh, you can download it anytime for free or any other at Bradblog.com. You can find and follow and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the TheBradBlog, and you can drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. As ever, my thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to do what we try to do every day right here over your public airwaves. All right, until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, Georgia. Good luck, South Carolina, Alabama, Florida, Texas. Good luck, world...